There's been a lot of attention paid lately in the music industry to the topic of the black box. In other words, a place where money goes when the rights holder can't be identified. In our ongoing effort to demystify the music industry, today we're going to try to unpack the term black box and figure out what it is that's really going on with unclaimed money. Is it really a nefarious plot to divert independent artists' money to huge artists? Or is it a problem with a number of solutions and a number of causes, some of which artists can actually prevent themselves? Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we talk about the black box. What is it? What's in it? And what can artists do to prevent their money going in there in the first place? It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Tracy Maddox of CD Baby. Tracy, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks, Portia. It's so fun to have you here. I'm uh, excited to be here. Yay. Redheads in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Gingers unite. I had a radio show in college called Take the Redheads Bowling. It was my redheaded friend and I. <laughs> that so sounds anyway, like fun. Sort of reminding me. Okay, so today's topic is the black box. So what I wanted to just get rolling with you is what does the black box mean for CD Baby and what is that in your world? When we use the term black box, we typically are talking about money that is either due to the artist that we're expecting and can't find because it's lost somewhere, presumably the black box, or money that we have and we can't pay to an artist or songwriter because we don't know who they are or where they are or, or specifically what rights they represent. Mm. Great. So what do you guys do? I mean, faced with this situation, this sounds like kind of the situation that any organization that's organized to pay out people is going to have a similar situation. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what black box money tends to be. And just to be real specific about what it is, we really think about our role in the supply chain of music as a collector of revenues. There isn't a lot of black box revenue or missing revenue on the sound recording side. A sound recording has a piece of data attached to it, a piece of metadata called an ISRC, International Sound Recording Code, that makes it clear who recorded the song and, and who the money is due to. And so a big part of our job is kind of done for us if we have the correct metadata. The other great thing about a sound recording is there's another piece of metadata we all tend to overlook, and that is what are you hearing? And so you can listen to a, a sound recording and say, well, gee, that sounds like such and such artist. We know who to pay. And so on the sound recording side, black box revenues tend to be less of a problem unless the artist hasn't told us that they've moved, that they've passed on to the other world, mm -hmm. that the band broke up. In that case, we end up with money that is owed to the artist, to the sound recording artist, but we can't pay it because we don't know who or where to pay it. In those cases, we desperately, desperately want to find the artist and pay them because the alternative isn't just sitting in a bank account. It is this idea in the United States known as escheatment. It's hard to spell. It's uh, hard to say. <sighs> but essentially means that the states 
want any money that we can't determine who it belongs to remitted to them so they can do the good deed of finding the person that the money belongs to. And so every couple of years, as we have aged balances that are owed to artists, we have to comply with, there's 31 United States that have a sheetment compliance regimes that if we haven't identified, if the last known address of the sound recording owner was in their state, we have to actually turn the money over to them. And so it does nobody any good. And then if the artist does eventually crop back up, we send them to the state to go get their money. The thing that uh, we spend quite a bit of time doing for these kind of lost accounts is figuring out who they are and where they are. And sometimes we're actually very fortunate to be able to call an artist with the good news that they have money owed to them. A funny story I'll tell you is from an artist named... Ed Sheeran. No, not that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> out of the UK. And Ed was a CD Baby artist all the way back to about 2003 or 2004 and had amassed a, a sizable amount of sound recording income that we couldn't find him to pay. Well, it turns out that the other Ed Sheeran had passed away. And so after about a two or three month battle where we were running up against a deadline where we would have to escheat the money to the state of New Jersey in this case. I don't know if that was his last note address or it, you know, there may be some other reason that that was the state we were going to have to send this money to. We actually found the brother of the other Ed Sheeran and were able to pay him and his estate over $30,000 wow. that had been trapped in the box, the black <laughs> box. And uh, why that's such a, a special story is his brother reported back that the money was actually going to be used to, to care for I believe it was a nephew or a sibling with developmental disabilities. Oh, so the wow. money not only went to the artist's estate, but went for good purposes and didn't have to go to the state of New Jersey, where undoubtedly it would have stayed as a source of, of state revenue for a long time. Right. So we spent a lot of time making sure that we're complying with states, but more importantly, exerting efforts to make sure that artists that have unclaimed money get paid. That's the sound recording side. Mm -hmm. It's not that complex or sexy. I don't even know why we call it black box. It's just money that we can't pay out because we don't know who to pay. The other side of the story, dun, the, dun, other, dun. the other black box. Yes. And I actually heard a better metaphor than black box to describe this very thing. Just a few weeks ago, I was on a panel with Vicki Nauman. So attributing this, this idea to her of a leaky bucket, because it's not like the box has no exit. In fact, black box revenues, largely defined, revenues attributable to the composition or potentially to a performance royalty earned and accrued by a performing rights organization like ASCAP, BMI, can actually end up in somebody else's pocket if it's not collected. Right. And so when we talk about black box revenues around the composition, which largely defined as the copyright of the words and music of a piece of music. We're talking about those revenues earned specifically by that composition that may not know where home is. So how do you determine who actually owns the money earned by a composition copyright? Well, number one, who wrote it or who contributed to writing it? Also, who were contributing performers on a sound recording? And if this metadata isn't gathered and delivered to say Spotify or to a concert venue, when the performance happens, those mechanical revenues can uh, disappear into the leaky bucket and eventually leak to other places like, in the case of uh, performing rights organizations and 
quasi-governmental organizations that deal with neighboring rights like sound exchange, one of the places that those monies can end up if unclaimed is in other artists' pockets and other labels' pockets and other rights holders' pockets. What happens every few years is this money isn't attributable to a specific rights holder and gets lost in the leaky bucket is that these entities are entitled to do or under their charters do what, what we call pool releases where that money is attributed to the artists that are identifiable on a pro-rata basis. Mm -hmm. So if my name is the other Ed Sheeran and I have earnings that uh, say ASCAP can't find me and I'm an ASCAP member, but they don't know that uh, this money was earned by my public performance, that music could be attributable to say the real Ed Sheeran or some other artist that is part of the member and uh, has uh, a market share. And so that's, that's what happens to the, the money that flows through the leaky bucket. On the composition side, it's even more complicated because we in the United States, and it's especially complicated in the United States, we operate under a statutory regime that dictates how composition revenues get earned, get paid, in what cases they get paid out. And in many cases, a composition can have many, many writers. I've seen compositions that can have as many as 50 to 100 different contributing writers. Hmm. And so those writers that don't perfect their claim on a composition and earn royalties but aren't known, a lot of times that, that money will go to the other writers. It will pass through the leaky bucket and go to writers who weren't even associated with the composition or its use. And so long story short, the money will end up somewhere else other than the artist or songwriter if that metadata, that describing data about who wrote it, what their share was, and where to find them and pay them isn't perfected. Yeah. And I think that's the problem that in, you know, the sort of PR problem we've had in the industry with this black box, this so-called black box is people are getting the impression that somehow money that belongs to them is just going to get shunted to larger artists. And in fact, the piece of legislation that's currently in the Senate, the MMA, having passed the House, has a, a similar sort of pool release provision on the publishing side, which everybody is really stressed out about, or at least certain artist groups are very stressed out about because they're, they're saying that this is going to happen all over again. Yeah, well, it's already happening. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that the MMA does is it creates a body to deal with a specific class of royalties, mechanical royalties that oftentimes are disappearing and aren't getting distributed. The MMA, from what I understand of it, and it is, it is uh, U.S. law. It does take an act of Congress, which is a hard thing to do, and it's very complicated. Creates a body to essentially be able to administer these mechanical royalties. But if they're not collected, it defaults to the same mechanism that Sound Exchange, which is formed under an act of Congress about uh, 15 years ago now, does, which is on a poor release, on a pro rata basis, unclaimed mechanical royalties will be distributed to artists that didn't create the work. And mm -hmm. that's a terrible outcome. But, you know, I, I, the way I think about this is it creates an important role for aggregators, labels, lawyers, agents and managers to play in the industry, which is we need to be held uh, accountable to and responsible for going out and advocating on behalf of our artists and songwriters and making sure that those uh, royalties are attributed 
the right way. That is a key part of what CD Baby does today. We take it very seriously with our co-publisher, SongTrust, on the mechanical side. We're very interested to go collect those black box royalties or leaky bucket royalties in other places around the world. And that's a key part of our value proposition. Under legislation like the MMA, it will continue to be a, an important part of what we do as a agent or representative for an artist and songwriter, which is to make sure that that which is due to them is registered appropriately to begin with. The metadata is delivered to the right place, the DSP, the Spotify, the Apple Music of the world, and also those monies get collected and appropriately paid back to the artist or songwriter.
was The Airport Lobby by New Dog. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Tracy Maddox of CD Baby. I was just on a panel at Music Biz last week about the importance of music credits. And one of the things that came up was that it's kind of difficult sometimes for an artist when they're in the studio to have a vision about the future, right? They're in the moment, they're making music, they're having this particular experience. And one of the things that kept getting said on the panel was somebody has to be the adult in the room and write things down. Because the truth is, if you're in the midst of the creative process and you're writing a great song and somebody goes, oh my God, wouldn't this be amazing with horns? And like they make a phone call and a horn player comes in and plays, you know, this perfect little horn piece and and then leaves. You know, did somebody write down that person's name, address, and phone number? You know, did they get all their data? Is that all being collected? So there's a lot of issues with just the very beginning part of the creative process in getting the right credits. Because really what you're talking about and what I deal with, you know, in my business, where we we have to deal with finding people who've disappeared off the map, it's always harder to chase something afterwards than to make it proper at the very beginning. And I, I think, you know, because CD Baby deals largely with independent artists and people who are doing it themselves, I'm sure a lot of your artists are very self-motivated and really want to do the right thing. But even still, it's like if you don't know how important something's going to be in the future, it's hard to to take it seriously right at the moment of creation. Yeah, I think that's right. The more collaborators, the more opportunity for misunderstanding, for misattribution and for mispayment. I would say it happens all the time where somebody had contributed to a song, they might not even know that they've, they're earning you know, some form of mechanical royalty or performance royalty or should earn it you know, because they weren't attributed at the point of creation and they'll just never know. We see, I mean, we're dealing with a, a vast universe of sound recordings and, and compositions. Our catalog's about 9 million sound recordings now. We'll crest a million compositions under management later this year. 150,000 songwriters that we represent and about 750,000 artists. And when they get together and create music together, there is a lack of metadata, there's a lack of attribution, there's things that are done inappropriately, sometimes just accidentally. And that leads to something that we hate to get in the middle of, which is disputes Mm. among artists and contributing artists. And when that happens, we have a whole uh, process to deal with these disputes where we freeze all the income and we try to let the parties sort it out through their agents. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Guess what that creates? Black box income. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, money that we can't pay out because it's it's under dispute. It's the same way it works in the kind of the regulated side of the industry, the composition side of the industry. It works that way with performance royalties and the PROs. Most likely will work that way in the MMA as well. If there's disputes among creators, the money just gets held. And yeah. until that dispute's worked out, it can't be paid out. Yeah. And how many people would you say you have on the CD Baby team who are working just exclusively on aspects of this problem? 
everybody has a role in rights <laughs> management, including me. You know, I really look at my primary role as one of education. And we spend a tremendous amount of money making videos, writing copy to help educate artists. We have a full-time general counsel now, a, an amazing individual named Jill Andrew, who's been with us for 13 years and served in many roles, including rights specialist. We have at least two rights specialists in our client service, client support group. I think of the 45 or so client support people Everybody gets a baseline of training at some point touches a dispute, a metadata recognition issue. We have 15 people whose sole job it is, we call them inspectors, but they're really, they're rights and metadata specialists uh, because, you know, again, the point of delivery where we're taking content and delivering it to Spotify and Apple Music is the point where we can really get this right. And so we invest really heavily making sure that that metadata is created effectively and authentically at, at the beginning. Enterprise-wide, fully dedicated, I'd probably put it at 20 mm-hmm. out of 150. Yeah, but that's still a significant portion of people who are really working to try to get these exact issues resolved. Absolutely. And it will grow. I mean, we are in a copyright management business. Fundamentally, that's what an aggregator like CD Baby does. It's part of what a label does, you know, promotions and other thing a label does. But, you know, understanding those rights, securing those rights, and then advocating for those rights and maximizing the monetization of those assets. That's what we do. Would you, I mean, if you could just boil this down to a simple sentence or two for young artists, besides just like, hey, make sure you have the right credits, <laughs> like make sure you write things down. What advice would you give to, to musicians? Number one, become an expert. You can't be good at everything. For instance, it would be very difficult, although it's possible for an artist to go to a place like New Zealand and and capture a performance royalty. But knowing what a performance royalty is and how they're collected, educate yourself, be knowledgeable in the endeavor in which you're getting into as the young artist. The other one is perfect your metadata. You know, write it down, give it to your aggregator to distributor label manager, make sure you have a record of it, make sure that record's electronic, make sure you can refer back to it. Metadata is the most critical thing in in terms of monetization, and it's the quickest way to liberate black box revenues, knowing exactly who did what on a song. Absolutely. And I would add to that just one other tiny thing. Update your email with (laughs) your label. If If it's CD Baby, if it's Kill Rockstars, if it's anyone... If it's ASCAP, if it's BMI, please, with anyone that you work with professionally, update your email if you get a new email address. That, that is so right, Portia. <laughs> I can tell you, I had one full-time employee last year spending time identifying who to pay and how to pay a bunch of money to. His name was Kevin Spafford. He did a great job. A lot of times he was tracking people down who were owed tens of thousands of dollars. What a gratifying job. Uh, Kevin did a fantastic job of it, but it was as simple as we didn't have an email, we didn't have an address, and that's, that's a really simple problem to solve. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, Tracy Maddox, thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What? Thanks for having me, Portia.
was Cherry Bomb by Bratmobile. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Vicki Nauman. Vicki, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yay, we're glad to have you. So the topic today is the black box and what is the black box? And so because this is a program where we're trying to educate people, musicians and just general people in the industry about issues that concern them, concern us and are part of our daily lives, we wanted to sort of speak to you because you've talked about the black box in the past. And can you just start off by talking a little bit about, you know, what is the black box? How did we get to this place where people are worried about this thing called the black box? Yes. Well, I like to correct people when we talk about the black box is to say there isn't just one black box. There are lots and lots of black boxes all over the world. And all these little black boxes, some of which are huge, having hundreds of millions of dollars in them. It's money that is not attributed and is not able to be matched with other uses that have occurred in the marketplace. So if you think about sound recordings, most sound recordings now have ISRCs and traceability to micro uses. But the underlying works of the mechanical rights, public performing rights, all of the associated owners of that sound recording, in order for everyone to get paid, everything has to be matched neatly to that sound recording that has been streamed or downloaded or used in some sort of digital environment. And when it hasn't been matched, that money goes into an unattributed fund and it sits there. That is one kind of black box. The other black box is money that may have been given from a DSP to a collection society or a label or a publisher, whomever is on the receiving end of a mass amount of data and money for usage, and that there's less money that goes out to the artists because of varying different business models the Delta is also a black box that sits on all sorts of companies' books all over the world. And one of the things that people, especially musicians, have sort of gotten up in arms about lately, and everybody, you know, rightly so, is the way that black box monies are distributed. And I think the way that that happens that bothers the most people is when there is either not an effort to track down each individual, let's say, songwriter in the case of songwriting mechanicals, or just an inability, like a complete inability to track down the songwriters. There's just no trace of those people. The money sometimes gets distributed to other people. Exactly. Can you talk about that a little bit? So when you think of most of the business models now that are driving the big streaming platforms of DSPs, and if we just talk about that, I think it simplifies this conversation a little bit, that there's money that comes from consumers that goes into a big pot. So all the money goes into one pot and then all of the usage also goes into one pot. And this gets divided up. 
so that the amount of money divided by the amount of usage and then that goes to the major stakeholders and rights holders and distributors and that money gets passed out in a perfect world that seems like well what you know that seems very transparent and seems like it's the right thing of putting all the money and all the usage data into one big pot but where it starts to break down is that the money that can't be matched or maybe there's things that are in the public domain or there's 10 songwriters on a new hip hop hit, but only three of them have registered their works. There's always going to be this delta that sits in a fund that is not attributed. Now, who has that money is also a really important question in addition to how do they try to make sure that all that money is paid out correctly. When money sits in a big, unattributed fund, the only way that it, that the smaller guys are going to be able to get this is if they go in and claim it. So then the only way that you can go in and claim something is if you know your all of your works and how all of your works have been used and who owns what and who controls what. And anything that doesn't end up getting claimed or specified to a you know smaller entity, which could be an individual small publisher, it could be a self-published artist, that money goes into a pool that after a certain period of time gets distributed and cut up by market share and divided out to the biggest stakeholders because it's deemed as it can't be the the writers and the authors can't be found. And then it's really beholden upon whomever has that pool of money and what kind of effort they're putting in to actually finding and making it easy for everyone to claim it. Right. And this sort of gets to the heart of the matter and the heart of the problem in the music industry, which I feel like we need to, you know, everybody needs to be held responsible because on the one hand, You know, I think it's really simple for artists when they're creating to not think about doing all of the business stuff. You know, that's that's probably the number one thing. You know, I mean, I remember when I was in a band and I was 24 and we were in the studio and it was awesome. Like we weren't thinking like, okay, let's make sure we have, you know, everyone who wrote on this song written down and the name of the studio and the producer and the engineer and the guy who came in and played sax for five minutes. And, you know, right. we didn't do any of that stuff, you know, because we didn't, I don't know, you know, when you're 24 or whatever, you don't really take it that seriously or you or you don't know that you need to do that and you don't have like a long-term view of like 25 years from now, I'm going to wish that I had the royalties for this. Exactly. And I think that there's a glazing over that happens every time I start talking to artists about things like, you know, you you need to have your ISWC codes and your ISRC codes or your CWRs and you need to, you know, register at all of these different agencies and, you know, and they just start to glaze over. And rightly so. This is a pretty unsexy (laughs) part of being a musician. But I do feel like eyes need to be wide open so that the artists, they understand how the money flows. And then if they don't want to do it, that's perfectly fine, but they need to entrust that to someone, right? to a smart and transparent platform, to an agent, to someone who can efficiently help them to get set up, to be able to collect all of those pennies all over the world and 
you know, that adds up. There's a myth that a lot of people have perpetuated that the that the amount of money that is sitting in all of these unattributed funds all over the world is not worth getting out of bed for. Mm. And I think that's completely false. Right. Well, and the funny thing is there's also the counter narrative that's just as prevalent, which is that oh, there's all this money that's been misappropriated by, you know, large corporations at the expense of, you know, sad young artists. It's not fair that they're using all this money and then they're giving, you know, let's say all my publishing royalties. They can't find me, so they're giving all my publishing royalties to Ariana Grande. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And it's an emotional thing. Yeah. You know, that's an, that's a really emotional argument. And, you know, and I think we need to move away from things feeling like, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is emotional and this is unfair. It's like, no, this business is a lot more like Visa and MasterCard now than it is anything else where it's about efficiencies. It's about granularity of knowing that there may be 20 people who are all stakeholders and, and rights holders on the back end of music and that we need platforms and systems to be able to accommodate that. And that is the world that we live in. And I can't, when I look at the future, I don't see this simplifying. I think if anything, it's going to continue to proliferate in this really, really fragmented way on the creation of music, just simply because of the way people are creating now. It's, it isn't the same as, you know, rock driven world where there were three guitarists and a drummer in the studio and they were banging it out. This is about samples and stems and, you know, remixing and having, you know, 10 different people collaborating in the studio. And that's not changing anytime soon. Right. Exactly. That is how the future of this music business is, is going to go. And, you know, that's part of the reason I named this show The Future of What? right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, what are we doing and how is it all going to work?
That was Excuse Generator by Lithix. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Hey, Portland. We're taping a live panel on June 30th at Mississippi Studios with co-host DJ Cliff. The event is all ages and tickets are available now at MississippiStudios.com. Proceeds go to Friends of Noise. See you there. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Vicki Nauman. So I think we can agree that we're not trying to come down on one side or the other here because certainly, you know, equitable distribution of funds is the goal. That's what everybody should do. But there's also a responsibility on the artist's part to try to make sure that all of their data is updated properly and that the people who can pay them have the information so that they can pay them so that they know where to find them. And I think that in itself really begs the question of there's so many income streams today. How are artists supposed to know all the various places that they might be getting paid from? Exactly. Well, I had a conversation with Willard from Cobalt, and he said that they found that there, on average, is are 600 different income streams all over the world that they're collecting on. Wow. And that's a combination of sound recording, public performance, and mechanical rights. And then you further break that down into neighboring rights and then usage in broadcast, in webcast, in interactive streaming, in other kinds of digital platforms, in YouTube and sync licensing. And so when you think about the need to collect on all of that, I think that you're exactly right that it is beholden upon the artist to understand this and to have a handle on the things that are going to enable them to get paid, which is ownership rights, having a team of people that can look after that for you, having an effective and transparent platform that's going to collect the royalties on it. But I think there's also, I think that there's also a narrative of that this is all nefarious practices, you know, Mm. that this is that the reason that that you're not getting paid is because the big bad labels or the big bad publishers are taking all of your money. Right. And I challenge that because I think maybe 10 years ago when we were in the midst of not really knowing how digital was going to play out, I think that there was a desperation and everybody was just kind of grabbing whatever money, all the stakeholders were grabbing as much money as possibly could be found under the couch cushions. But now I feel like, you know, the labels have heard artists and I do feel like there's probably a lot more work to be done. But the fact that the major labels have stood up and said, and Merlin have stood up and said, we are going to share the proceeds from our investment in Spotify with artists. We're going to share breakage on advances with artists. That's a huge, huge step forward. And I think that everyone in the industry, from labels to artists to writers and publishers, have seen that they're very likely losing money. And I think that there's this metaphor that I like to use that, you know, yes, there's some nefarious practices where people are trying to cheat other people out of money, but there's also a significant 
problem in the global systems that we have. And the core of that is that a lot of these systems were built when the music industry had a lot of money. And that was in the 90s. And so they saw a single transaction as being a $25 CD. And now we're bent all of the systems that were meant for, you know, a single transaction of $25 to a single transaction, which is a stream, which is 0.0027 cents. Right. And the metaphor that I use to illustrate, you know, where the money is going is that I have a garden. I have this great yard and garden that's been one of the most satisfying things I've ever built in my my life. (laughs) But if you have a garden in your backyard and you have a water spigot in the front yard and you have a bucket, a watering bucket that you go and fill up in the front yard and it's rusted out in parts or it's leaky and you haven't really noticed because the leaks are tiny and you carry your water bucket from the spigot to your garden, and by the time you get to the garden, it's almost empty. And so there's nothing there. And you look behind you, and you say, oh, well, there's a little bit of drips here and there. It's this big, leaky bucket. And that is the way the rights and royalty money settlement that's associated with the data is happening all over the world is it's not anyone who is necessarily trying to cheat anyone out of anything. There's just money that spills out all the time and it leaks and nobody is really benefiting from that Mm. because some money doesn't get settled between the DSP and the collections agency. Some money gets caught at the collections agency because there's conflicts around publishing or there's a change in ownership, or somebody can't be found, or somebody didn't have a correct code, or there's a lack of 100% licensing associated with the publishing. And there's a really, really long list of reasons. But ultimately, it's about everybody creating an environment where systems and practices are built with this new normal of really, really micro transactions that need to efficiently be processed and settled and paid out all over the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the notion that there's one big corporation or corporate entity that's nefariously trying to take the little guy's money, even if that were true, the idea that becoming educated about where your money is coming from you know, you shouldn't have to do that is is completely false. Like, I feel like education lifts all boats. You know what I mean? It's like knowing Mm -hmm. where your money is coming from or should be coming from and how you need to position yourself to get that money is going to help everybody in the entire equation. I mean, I can't tell you how depressed I am when I have an artist who I pay royalties to or even who I don't owe royalties to, they're unrecouped or they made, you know, 12 cents or something. And I send them an email and I get a bounce back that says, you know, bad email. Right, right. Because I'm like, well, that's it. Exactly. Where, you know, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I can't even give them their statement. I can't tell them anything about what I need to tell them. And a lot of times, you know, if you have one song on a Kill Rock Stars compilation from 24 years ago, 
you're not going to necessarily think like, oh, hey, I better update them every time I change my email or, or move. Right. You know, it seems like such a small thing, but those small things really can add up. And especially in the marketplace today, where, like you said, it's a digital market, not a physical market, which means suddenly it's all these gazillions of microtransactions. So even if you do have one song on a comp from 24 years ago, hey, that song's getting streamed digitally and now there's royalties in the marketplace for you. Exactly. I, I think that some of this is the you know leftover from previous eras where you say, oh, you're an artist, you create. And then there are other people that do all this dirty work of getting you signed and getting radio promo and getting your records into a store. And, you know, that myth, I feel like there was probably tons of money that was being lost back in the day because people weren't informed about where their money was coming from. But now there are not the same amount of advances or the same pools of revenue that are sloshing around that if you don't know where your money's coming from now, and you think about cobalt is collecting on 600 different uses all over the world. If you don't have a handle on that, right? how in the world would, <laughs> does that work? I can't, I can't see my way through that. Right. But I also feel like, you know, there's a new era of, and a new generation of artists that are coming up that are a little bit more digitally savvy. They understand that they can retain their rights or they can sell their rights, but it's part of a trade-off and that they have to have a basic understanding of the way the landscape works. You know, and I love the fact that you're really advocating education and training of artists because that is where it all has to start. Yeah. And if your analogy is the leaky bucket, then our message is to artists, get a hose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Ex- Just get exactly. a hose. No get a hose. Yeah, get a new tool. You need a new tool. Yep. And this is also something where I think that the promise of streaming is one in which your music can not only have an initial value of getting into the marketplace, but over the course of time, as people continue to listen to music and it keeps getting resurfaced in playlists or in samples or used as derivative works, that music and that creation is a foundation that keeps giving you returns over the course of time. Exactly. But the only way that that really plays out in a digital environment is that we have the correct unique identifiers in place for everyone's IP and that those are held in trust for the creators of those IP with some level of transparency. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's just the only way to do it. And you know, I was at this ASCAP Expo a month or so ago, and I was talking to people after the panel that I did. And two of the artists that I was talking to said, well, we've always just kind of taken an approach. We're just going to put things out there. And if it's a hit, we'll figure out who owns what later. Oh, my God. I know. That's horrible. And, well, it is. But it's also, I mean, there are huge artists that have done this. And my response is, if your song gets out there and it's a surprise hit and it blows up, the last thing you're going to be doing 
when you're on that kind of a roller coaster ride is going back and saying, oh, have we registered? Do I have my ISWC code? And right. is my ISRC, is that all clear? And do we have 100% of our publishing on the back end? And who was in the studio? And yeah. do we know how to reach that guy? Oh who, my God. You know, who rapped on the third song? Right. You know? And think of how awful it is to leave yourself open to such trouble if you don't have your ducks in a row, because then you do have somebody who shows up and says, hey, I rapped on the third song. Exactly. And you're like, I don't remember that. And then they sue you. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Or they're like, hey, I wrote the entire second verse. And you're like, I don't think that's true. I mean, you know, you have to know what's going on before, you know, position yourself. But I guess that's another thing. It's like inherent modesty, right? People's like, people are like, no, my song will never be a big hit. So I don't need to get my ducks in a row. But your point about sort of this, you know, the long tail of digital and streaming internet is that you don't, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big hit like you, you know, number one on the radio. It's more like there's going to be income from that song for years and years and years. Right. And so that's how you have to start thinking about it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that one of the big debates that we've had for 15 years is about the long tail and whether the long tail is a real thing or not, and whether or not the digital economy will enable artists who are not big pop stars to be able to make a living. And I think where we landed is thus far is that the streaming business where you need everything from every artist and every label and every publisher, and you put that into a big $9.99 a month streaming service, that's a business around scale. Right. And the companies that are looking for success in that business model need the biggest artists and those that are attracting the most subscribers and the most listeners. There's no coincidence that a lot of those artists are on big labels and publishers, and they also may have lawyers and agents and people who act on their behalf and make sure that the money's flowing. And they're all doing fine. You know, they're making a lot of money. Then there's artists at the very bottom that are what I would probably consider hobbyists and people that are wouldn't normally be putting their music out, but they can in, you know, in a digital environment. So why not? And they're not as concerned about collecting money as, you know, as that's uh, it's something that they just do for fun. But there's this big middle cross section of artists that are independent or they're on indie labels or then indie publishers and they have a professional career and they are trying to connect with fans in these big streaming environments as well as get paid. And in that cross section of this middle tier of artists, that's really where I feel a lot of this breaks down in that many of the labels and publishers and systems that are serving that middle section, they may not have the most up-to-date and current systems as well as rules that enable them to have audit rights and be able to you know, really go into their royalties and figure out whether they're getting paid everything that they're owed. So I think that I'm super excited and bullish about big new crop of startups that have realized that this is a problem in that middle layer and that they're working on behalf of artists as well as 
labels and publishers to create more efficiencies and create systems that can handle terabytes of data and be able to process royalties. And I think that some of the pain that we're feeling right now in that middle layer is just simply the leaky bucket and that it's handoff of data and money that's just going through these meandering and twisting turns in the settlement of rights and royalties and data. And there needs to be a lot more efficiency and a lot more understanding of technology in that layer to be able to really get the money to the right people. And on that note, Vicki Nauman, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Great. Well, thank you so much and keep up the good work. Thanks. You too. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard New Dog, Bratmobile, Lithics, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.